Good morning, good morning, Element. This is the least attended 11 o'clock service I have seen. It's like 8 o'clock in here, so the few and the proud. Um, baptisms are October 16th, and if you are planning on getting baptized, there is a baptism class um, that's going to happen after service. So go to the Welcome Center, um, talk to, to whoever's there, and they will give you more information about that. Uh, so my name is Jonathan G. My wife and I are deacons, and we lead a gospel community group here today. Uh, today is the last new material on the first part of the book of Acts. So we, we did it. We're, we took just about a year to get through the first half of the book of Acts. Um, so today we're going to talk about Acts 12, 20 through 25, And as I said, this is the last teaching section for the book of Acts. I think there's one more kind of a recap and mission summary that Aaron's going to do next week. So Aaron has sermons written essentially out until 2018. And the second half of the book of Acts did not make those plans. We will get to it eventually, um, but as of right now, we don't know when. So please stand. Isaiah 47 through 8 says this, The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who is concerned about his glory. Thank you for being a God who is gracious enough to allow us to participate in spreading your glory. I don't know why you chose to partner with us, but I am thankful for that opportunity. Father, I pray that we will be a people who, when we are praised or admired, that we are quick to acknowledge that you are the one who deserves glory and not us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I got some some hassle on my, my jacket. It's my, my therapy jacket. Um, but today it's the teaching jacket, so we're all good. Um, so today we are talking about Acts 12, 20 through 25. Uh, this is an interesting passage of scripture. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how we do. Uh, here it is. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. So what are we going to do about this passage? Pretty interesting, pretty fun. Um, So Acts 12 starts very differently. Then it ends. The chapter starts with Herod killing James and ends with God killing Herod. Now, it's important to realize that this is not karma. We do not believe in karma, but what we do believe in is God's sovereignty. 
We see time and time again that God is in control. He demonstrates this throughout the book of Acts and all throughout scripture. The passage that Eric spoke about last week paints a picture that Herod is in control. James was killed, but at the end, it switches to the word of God increased and multiplied, and Herod was silenced. Pretty big plot twist. How often do we need this reminder that God is in control, despite when things feel bleak or when we feel lost? God is always in control. This passage is ultimately about three things. Pride, the glory of God, and the sustaining provision of God. Before we dive in, let's remind ourselves of some of the historical context of what's going on. The book of Acts reveals to us that Christianity is relatively early in development and has begun spreading rapidly due to the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is spreading in a Jewish culture, a Greek culture, and Roman culture. The Jewish religious leaders and Roman political leaders are unsuccessful in attempting to extinguish Christianity from spreading. It is a dangerous time of relentless persecution for Christians. N.T. Wright says this, All this is, of course, part of the theme which Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, never tires of telling. From one angle or another, things appear to go badly for the church, this way or that. There may be real reverses, tragedies, and disaster. And yet, the God who has revealed himself in and through Jesus remains sovereign. And his purpose is going ahead whatever the authorities from without or various controversies from within may do to try and stop it. So let's dive into this passage now. I'll come back to verses 20 through 22, but let's take a look at the most startling verse in this passage. Verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, referring to Herod. So the question we look at is, why did God strike down Herod? We can see through the passage that Herod was after two things, power and approval. A lot of the same things many of us in this room are after. Herod wanted more than anything to be exalted. He wants the praise of man for his power, and history bears this out on his life more than any other personality trait. He wanted people to remember him as powerful. He wanted to be remembered as if you oppose him, you will be crushed and destroyed. He wanted his glory to grow. At the start of the chapter, we are told that Herod killed James, and he saw that it pleased the Jews. So soon after, he wanted to do it again and imprison Peter. But God had other plans. But Herod will not stop until an outside force acts upon him. He's being reinforced, and he's saying, Oh, look, I don't just kill people. I get popularity, and I get adorned with more power and more adoration, the two things he wants most. He is continually reinforced. So Herod's mindset and quest for power is first of all directly at odds with Christianity. The author of the Gospel of John understands Herod's heart, and in John 5.44, the author writes this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is a rhetorical question. 
Essentially, this means that it's impossible to believe in God if your life's driving purpose is to receive glory from other people. This is pride, the opposite of faith. When you seek praise of man above all else, you are on a collision course with God. And ultimately, it won't work out for you. So number one, pride. The sin of Herod is the same as our culture's sin. For some reason, we justify our pride because we often think we are in control. We give ourselves credit for the many blessings that God has given us. Friedrich Nietzsche, the existential philosopher who is credited with saying, God is dead, has an excellent understanding of pride. He says, what is good but all that heightens the feeling of power? The will to power, power itself. This belief of our own goodness has been our culture's God. It is the idea that whatever leads to an increase in power or our own glory is good. So, question for you. Where in your life do you seek to gain your own glory? What does pride look like for you? Maybe it's being afraid to ask for help when things are falling apart in your marriage. Maybe it's the belief that your whole identity is tied up in what you do or how much you make. Pride can manifest itself in many different ways, but in our culture today, one of the subtlest is through social media. How many of you scroll through Facebook and just see nothing but selfies? Pride can be posting pictures of ourselves and constantly checking to see how many people like them or comment them. We find ourselves getting angry and frustrated when we don't receive enough likes or approval. We feel like we deserve adoration. Another way pride emerges is in our relationships with others. Think of people who always try to one-up you. You immediately say something and they go beyond. Saturday Night Live uh, understood this and did a skit a few years ago with Kristen Wiig. And every time someone said something, she would one-up it. If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, and I'm not going to do it justice. But essentially, the conversation starts normally. A woman just had a baby, and she said, I, I just lost 15 pounds. But before she could even finish, Kristen Wiig's character was like, well, I lost 20 pounds. And so that's a human tendency. We try to one-up each other. But as the skit continues, it gets a little bit more and more perverse. And somebody says to Kristen Wiig's character, show a little bit of respect. And she, instead of being humbled, says, I wrote the song Respect for Aretha Franklin. <laughs> it's a hilarious skit. Me and Michelle quote it all the time. I probably quote it way more than she does, though. I actually wrote the skit. So, um, <laughs> so this, this skit is a, is a farce, but we all know someone like this in our life who has to have the last word who will continue to one-up us. One-upping is an attempt to bring the focus back on us. No matter what the other person is saying, we're not listening. We don't care because it's not about us. Pride robs us of the ability to connect meaningfully to other people. It becomes our prison. Scripture is packed with verses and stories that remind God's people of the danger of pride. Proverbs 16:18 says this, Pride goes before destruction. In a haughty spirit before the fall. Satan 
Adam, Eve, King Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, all of you, and myself included, throughout history have suffered from pride. Deep down, we want to be our own God. You may have different words for that, but it is still there. We do not want to be told how to live our life. And so pride affects our spirituality because we are constantly calling attention to our own righteousness. Whereas Jesus was constantly challenging the Pharisees for practicing religion just to be seen by others. I remember when I was in elementary school, I went to a Christian school, and there was a prestigious award given to one student in the whole school. It was called the Timothy Award. This award was given to the individual who had the most exemplary Christian character. So essentially the best Christian in the school got this award. I remember being in kindergarten saying, oh my gosh, I want to win this award. Even at a young age, my heart was in a bad place and I wanted to glorify myself. It took me until fifth grade, but I did win the award. I won the award about being the best Christian. But God was not glorified. I did that for myself, to gain acceptance, to make myself appear better than I really was. I still see the effects that pride has in my life, even though I can look back and clearly identify it. I see how I exaggerate in conversations, how I will stretch the truth, or I will leave something out of a story to make myself look better than I am. Pride used to be touted as one of the deadliest sins But now in our culture, pride is celebrated. Once again, pride is the belief that I am my own God. C.S. Lewis calls pride the greatest of sins. And he says this, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are but mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and family since the world began. When we are prideful, it robs us of the ability to experience God's grace. We focus on what we have done rather than what Christ has done for us. And this is a dangerous position because when you're prideful, you don't even know how far away from God's grace you are. This leads to our second point, the glory of God. Herod wanted to be seen as powerful, as the giver of all good things, to be seen as a God and not a man. On the day of his oration, He wore a royal robe woven from pure silver. And according to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian historian at the time, he said, The outfit Herod wore not only manifested a sense of royalty, but to many onlookers, the very manifestation of a deity. He was trying to be their god. The cities of Tyre and Sidon were coastal cities in Syria and were dependent upon Herod for food. We know that Herod was angry at the people from Tyre and Sidon, but we don't know why. But the people needed to appease Herod because their food supply was in jeopardy. A famine that was mentioned a few weeks ago was taken 
taken effect. So as he came up and delivered his speech, the people chanted, the voice of a god and not of a man. If you ever want to appeal to someone to get what you want, appeal to their vanity. Herod played this up, and he did not redirect people's praises. He owned it. He accepted their praise, and he wanted that worship. All throughout scripture, you see when people do this, bad things essentially happen. And the story is no different. But can you think of people today who like to be perceived as more than human? What does it do to their attitude? How do they view others? If you're having trouble thinking of people who exemplify this, I recommend you watch a replay of the presidential debate. It was full of uh, great examples. We even teach our own children to view themselves this way, that they are more valuable than anyone else. Our kids start to see and think that they are better than everyone. And when we do this, we set them up for failure. We must raise our kids to know humility or they will go the way of Herod. During the speech, Herod was basking in his own perceived glory, and God took Herod's life. R.C. Sprawl writes this, Here was a man, the most powerful ruler in Palestine. He seemed omnipotent. Yet in the midst of his most glorious moment of fame and triumph, arrayed in garments of silver, he was afflicted by God instantly. This is not God simply being unreasonable. This is the beginning of God's church the early church, and he was protected, protective over it. God will stop at nothing for his mission and glory to move forward. So God put Herod in his place to make clear to everyone who would listen that God and not Herod is to be honored and glorified. If a man lifts himself up against God, he will ultimately lose. Has this ever happened to you? where you've developed a big head and then you got humbled? Be thankful that's all that has happened because you are still alive. This message of kings taking glory when it belongs to God is not new. And it happens time and time again throughout scripture. The Exodus, but it happens with Pharaoh, but my favorite is in Daniel. And Daniel 2.21, Daniel says this, God changes time and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. It's important to remember during this time of a presidential election that, once again, leaders are appointed by God. During this time, it was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he stated, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? A voice from God came and said, You will eat grass like an ox, until you have learned that the Most High rules kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. If you read all of Daniel, you see this is exactly what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. He wanders the fields for years eating grass. But in the end, this ended up being a great grace that God displayed. And you also have to understand that just like in Nebuchadnezzar's life, that God taking 
God's taking of Herod's life was also an act of great grace towards the church. We are all like milk. We have an expiration date, and that date sits in God's hand. Simply, this day, God said to Herod, you are expired. Today, I think it is important for us to be wary of any individual who talks about themselves more than, and all the things they have done more than what God has done. The higher we raise people up, the higher we raise ourselves up, the harder we fall. We are not meant to be gods. God is serious about his glory, and it will not be stopped. But what does the glory of God actually mean? I know this is a cliche that is tossed around in Christian circles, but not a lot of people have an understanding of what it actually is. First, God's glory entails weightiness. Weightiness in his wonderful qualities, such as might, beauty, goodness, justice, honor, and love in others. When it comes to these characteristics and so many others, God has them all in abundance. And only he can stand to possess them in their fullness. Thus, when we think of God's glory, we remember that God has all good things, greater in quality and quantity than we can ever imagine. We aren't just talking about God's reputation. God's glory reflects his essential nature. He is the source of all good things. There's this idea called Christian hedonism that we find our most um, meaningful existence and pleasure and goodness of God when we fully submit to God's glory. And that's so cool because God understands that if you worship him and partake in his glory and mission, you will live a more satisfying life. Second, God is the only one deserving of glory, but he actually shares glory with us. Romans 8.30 says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are not glorified, once again, because of our own worthiness or what we have done or accomplished. The only reason why we are made worthy is because of Christ's work in us. When we receive his plentiful gifts with gratitude and when we use them to enhance his honor, when we acknowledge him as the source of all goodness, then we are glorifying God. This is what it means when we partake in the glory of God. We experience true goodness. And to participate in the glory of God is the chief end of man. We turn our attention back to the passage, and the next line is, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Chapter 12 is a chaotic chapter. James was killed, Peter was incarcerated and delivered, and then Herod the king died suddenly. But despite the chaos, the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, persisted. The fact that the gospel continues does not discount suffering. Because at the end of the day, Stephen and James still died. And others were martyred for their faith. And the world is still currently filled with heartbreak and brokenness. But, through, but though God's heart is moved in his sovereignty... 
sorry, but though God's heart is moved, his sovereignty over life is unmoved. That means God governs the chaos. Nothing is ever outside of his control. So despite there being pain, God remains good, and the gospel continues. This leads to the sustaining provision of God. How do we reconcile the idea of pain with a loving God? I don't have time to try and flush this question out, but even if I did, it would not be sufficient until you go through it in your own life. You have, if you have experienced great pain, you realize that God was walking with you through it. You were never outside of his hand. You know exactly what I mean if you've been through this. I heard an example of a father who was around 40, and he had a daughter who was around four. The father is completely delighted in his daughter, very pleased. But the way the daughter views the world is very different than the way the father views the world. The daughter wants to not brush her teeth, not go to bed on time, color on the walls, and many more things. The father wants something radically different. He wants the daughter to to grow up, take responsibility, submit her life to God, and experience his grace. But there is a gap so significant between two finite creatures. How much larger is the distance between the finite and the infinite? Sometimes we may not understand why God does something. But we can trust that his views are so much wider and longer than our own. I know I find comfort when life seems chaotic in Romans 8.28, which is this. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Suffering exists, but God can use suffering to move forward. We don't know why God uses suffering, but he does. So let's talk a little bit about Rome during this time. Rome was a big deal. It created roads that we still drive on today. Like our roads in Santa Maria are probably worse than a lot of the roads built thousands of years ago. Rome was huge and sprawling. But Rome wanted Christianity gone and was persecuting Christians. Also, a quick little side note, since Christmas is approaching, persecution is not being told happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas or getting a red cup from Starbucks without reindeer on it. (laughs) Keep yourself in check. But during this time, Christians were killed in horrific ways. They were boiled alive, fed to lions, beheaded, crucified, crucified upside down, stoned, you name it. Any bad possible death, Christians experienced it. Tertullian, who was a defender of the Christian faith, and he died in AD 225, said to his enemies, we Christians multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. Jerome, another church father, stated a hundred years later, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others. By enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. 
martyrdoms have crowned it. By the year 351 AD, there was over 350 million people in the Roman Empire who identified as Christian. That's over half the Roman Empire during a time of intense persecution. The harder you press Christianity, the faster it grows. And that is true even to this day all over the world. The gospel of Jesus cannot and will not be stopped. But let me ask you, what is opposing it in your own life? What causes you to be silent or even resistant to the truth of the gospel? What causes you to shy away and not love in service to others? According to a Pew Research study, it's not a religious institution, um, but they conduct research and surveys for all over the world, they found that Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world currently and reported Christians experienced frequent prosecution in 151 countries on earth. But God goes before us and is actively drawing people in from all nations to experience his glory. Pew Research, the same study, also predicted that there will be over 633 million Christians in Africa by year 2025. If you remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, a lot of it can be traced back to that individual. There's going to be more Christians in both Asia and South America than the 655 million. However, our boldness does not come from statistics alone, but it comes from the fact that God cannot be thwarted. The glory of God already covers the world, and one day men will eventually realize it. This is why we are called to partner with him, to live on mission and point to God's glory in all things. Even in communion, it represents the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the death of Jesus. This seems bizarre. And when Jesus died, the disciples were left for three days questioning, thinking this failed. But God used that moment, that chaos, to accomplish his will and glory. We on the other side of that event now understand that Jesus died in our place. Even in that act, God once again shows his sovereignty and his glory. By raising Jesus from the dead and imputing his righteousness to us, we get to partake in God and we are made right. This is one of the reasons why we come to communion each week. We acknowledge that we are broken, but we are offered peace in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The band is going to come back And as they do, we invite you to pray. There are going to be deacons and elders in the back, and they they want to pray with you about everything, about whether you're experiencing a lot of pride in your life, hurt, or unexplained situations. Please, seek prayer. We, there's going to be offering boxes on the sides and in the back. And our giving is a genuine response because God has given so much to us. 
So we invite you to take communion and recognize the fact that Christ's body was broken and he was redeemed. And through that sacrifice, we are made whole and new. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you are a God who does not cease to redeem. Despite our pride and our glory-seeking, you are the one who sits on the throne and you humble us. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to the pride in our life because most of the time we can't even see it. Father, I pray that we will learn to hate this pride because, and see it for what it is, separation from you. Father, I am thankful that nothing surprises you. And that you go before us and your glory does cover the earth. Father, I pray that in times of chaos, we will remember that you have us and you are unchanged. Thank you for being a good, gracious, and loving God. We love you. Amen.